On one of Churchill's full moon weekends at Ditchley, Diana Cooper, wife of Information Minister Duff Cooper, told Churchill the best thing he had done was to give people courage. He did not agree. I never gave them courage, he said. I was able to focus theirs. It is possible that the people would have risen to the occasion no matter who had been there to lead them, but that is speculation. What we know is that the prime minister provided leadership of such outstanding quality that people almost reveled in the dangers of the situation and gloried in standing alone. Only he had the power to make the nation believe that it could win. Well, that is an excerpt from The Splendid in the Vile, a saga of Churchill, family, and defiance during the Blitz by Eric Larson. And welcome to episode six of the Goodreads podcast. And today we are going to go through this book, The Splendid in the Vile. I absolutely loved reading this book. It was a page turner to me. Um, it's over a thousand pages, so it's a long book, and it all centers around the year 1940. That's it, a thousand pages on the year 1940. And what it talks about is Winston Churchill, his ascent to prime minister of Great Britain, and this is in World War II, but it's before America's involvement. And in the year 1940 is a year that the Germans began to bomb England and London and all different parts of Great Britain. It was an immense time of stress, of danger, and there were no guarantees at all. In fact, it looked like Great Britain was going to fall to Germany. Um, but the thing that made the difference was Winston Churchill's leadership. That was it. It wasn't the resources that they had. It wasn't uh, all those kinds of things, but he, it was his ability to focus the resolve of the people. So I absolutely love this book. I hope that you will enjoy it. And, uh, and what I think is so cool about it is, one, you get a real inside look into Winston Churchill's personality, which I just find really, really enjoyable and also uh, great leadership lessons from it. But you also get this great sense of history of what daily life felt like and looked like during this really, really difficult time. So the story begins and uh, Germany is at war with France and Great Britain. And Germany looks like an unstoppable force at this point. Uh, things do not look good. And the, the Britons are worried about how war is going to literally come to their neighborhoods, to their homes, to their beaches. Um, and they're not sure that they will be up to the task to take it. It starts by giving us a context. It says, Britain's civil defense experts fearing a knockout blow predicted that the first aerial attack on London would destroy much, if not all, of the city and kill 200,000 civilians. It was widely believed that London would be reduced to rubble within minutes of war being declared. London for several days will be one of vast, raving bedlam. The hospitals will be stormed, traffic will cease, the homeless will shriek for help, the city will be a pandemonium. So the experts in the military and the government were saying, Listen, if the Germans, if we can't hold them off in France and they 
take over France, and then they start attacking London and Great Britain. So we we are going to fall quickly, and it is going to be horrible. So that was the experts' best estimation of what was ahead of them. And they were putting all their hope in the French, in France not being taken over, but fighting it out, and maybe fighting it out long enough for the United States to get involved and to become this great ally that they needed. Larkin says, French endurance was the cornerstone of British defensive strategy. That France might fall was beyond imagining. And if you look at maps today and you see France and England, Great Britain, uh, in the English Channel between them and the North Sea between uh, Great Britain and Belgium, these are not far distances at all. And because of the increase in technology of aircraft, these were targets that could be easily bombed from France, you know, if it gets taken over. So this was a very, very precarious place that they were in. And he talks all about just the anxiety among the leadership and the city. Now, the year is 1940, and at this point, the prime minister of Great Britain is Neville Chamberlain. And because he has not done a good job, at least by the public's opinion, and the uh, leadership of the country, he is pretty much being forced to resign. And at this point, Winston Churchill is the first Lord of the Admiralty. So he's, you know, basically the commander of their Navy. He's 65 years old. He has a, you know, an interesting reputation, you could say, uh, among the other leaders and government officials. King George does not really care for him. Um, He's been very outspoken against Hitler. And he's been the one that all along has saying, listen, we cannot make any peace with Hitler. We cannot um, open our thoughts and minds to, to peace with him. And he has been calling that for a long time. And of course, he was absolutely right. And so finally, um, Winston Churchill is selected as the prime minister because of all this pressure, Neville Chamberlain resigns. And the king accepts him as a prime minister. And as he, uh, you know, takes this role, he just has some interesting experiences. He talks to his chief security officer, a man named Thompson. And when he uh, was declared prime minister, when he had met with the king, he said to him after that meeting, all I hope is that it is not too late. I am very much afraid that it is. But we can only do our best, give the rest of what we have, whatever there may be left to us. And one of the cornerstones of Winston Churchill's leadership is to not uh, deny and acknowledge the difficulty that's before him. He doesn't try to sugarcoat it to himself or others, but he always will acknowledge the challenge that is ahead. But yet then he's able to do this other thing where he, he lifts the human spirit to a greater level of courage and strength that they didn't even know was in there. And we'll see this all through the book and all through his leadership. And I absolutely love it because I want to be a leader that does that. I want to, uh, as the, the Stockdale, if you've ever read about James Stockdale, one of the things that he says is, is you have to confront the brutal facts, which Churchill did again and again, but never lose hope that you will win in the end may take way longer than you think, may longer than you want, but you will prevail. And Winston Churchill lived that out perfectly and was able to communicate that in a way to his people and his leadership again and again. Confront the brutal facts. We're not going to sugarcoat it. We're not going to deny it. We're going to acknowledge it. 
but then we're going to acknowledge it with this invincible optimism. And, uh, and I love seeing that. I want to lead like that. Um, I think there is, is so much powerful to it. So when Winston Churchill becomes prime minister, Larson says he was elated. He had lived his entire life for this moment. That it had come to such a dark time did not matter. If anything, it made his appointment all the more exquisite. In the fading light, Inspector Thompson saw tears begin to slip down Churchill's cheeks. Thompson, too, found himself near tears. So he had saw this as the culmination of his life. Uh, and, and Churchill had a deep sense of destiny, that he, he was here on this earth to save the British kingdom. He had kind of lived that as a young man. Now, Eric Larson's book doesn't get into this uh, quite too much, but if you read Candace Miller's book on Winston Churchill's time where he is a prisoner of war during the Boer Wars, um, she talks quite a bit about that. It's really, really fascinating. Maybe that's a, a book we'll do um, down the road. Well, that night that he was appointed prime minister, he wrote in his diary, he said, I'd held most of the great offices of state, but I readily admit that the post which had now fallen to me was the one I liked best. He said, I wasn't coveting power for power's sake, but power in a national crisis when a man believes he knows what order should be given is a blessing. So you just get an insight there to his confidence. And maybe it borderlined on arrogance, but maybe not. Um, maybe this really was the culmination of his life because he had been through war and he had grown this incredible resilience um, that he was going to need uh, and be able to also give his people. And, uh, and he said, man, I, this moment is a blessing. This has been what my life has built up to. He said, at last, I had authority to give directions over the whole scene. I felt as if I were walking with destiny, that all my past life had been but a preparation for this hour and for this trial. Although impatient for the morning, I slept soundly and had no need for cheering dreams. Facts are better than dreams. And just kind of one of the funny things about Churchill is that the amount of stress he was under, I could not even imagine, but he was always able to sleep well. Um, and many say that, that that was kind of one great strength that he had. He could sleep wherever and get that, the rest because, you know, leaders need rest. And I think the more, uh, the greater challenge that is ahead of you as a leader, the more you have to take rest seriously. And sometimes as a leader, you just want to go forward and drive and drive and drive. But when a leader is on E, a leader is really not that good to people, and that's where leaders tend to go off the rails. And one thing that I see just in the daily life of Churchill is he knew what rhythms worked for him. He knew how to schedule his life so he could give his best. And many other people thought it was really weird, really peculiar, but it worked for him. And I would just encourage you as a leader, um, you know, it, it may, and you may think, well, I'm not really a leader. Well, you're probably a leader at your home. Uh, if you've got kids or a spouse, uh, you know, if you're working with other people in, in your industry, uh, many of us probably have more leadership roles than we think. And find a rhythm, find a schedule that works for you and be confident in it, even if it seems strange to other people. Because you're going to see Winston Churchill had very strange habits, but they worked for him. Churchill knew that his challenge now was to make everyone else believe it. His countrymen, his commanders, his cabinet ministers, and most importantly, the American president, Franklin D. Roosevelt. From the very start, Churchill understood a fundamental truth about the war. He could not win it 
without the eventual participation of the United States. And, uh, and this becomes a big arc of the story is Winston Churchill's relationship with the U.S. Because at this time, the U.S. does not want to get involved. Now, Roosevelt is sympathetic to Churchill. He likes Churchill. He realizes that Germany is most likely going to be a threat to the U.S. in time. Uh, but the public sentiment is anti-war. They do not want to get involved. They want to mind their own business. And so Roosevelt's hands are very, very tied. And even being able to offer financial and equipment aid um, to Great Britain during this time, he really it has to work very, very hard to help them out at all. And Churchill knows this. So through the story, he's constantly trying to win the confidence and win the affection of the American people um, so that they would be sympathetic to his cause. Uh, now, uh, Larson shares this story about when Churchill was beginning this work and his son Randolph uh, was in his home with them and Churchill was getting ready. He was shaving and he was just thinking to himself and he turned towards the son and he said, I see my way through. And he turned back to his mirror and started shaving. And Randolph knew he was talking about the, the war and the remarks started him. Um, he said, do you mean we can avoid defeat? So this is Churchill's son. Do you mean we can avoid defeat? So this is how grim the situation was. Now, we know how the story ends, that they, the Allies win. But at this time, it really didn't look like that by, by any metric, by any perspective. But yet Churchill says, I, I see my way through. That we can avoid defeat, Randolph asked, or beat the bastards. At this, Churchill threw his razor into the basin and whirled to face his son. Of course I mean we can beat them. He snapped, well, I'm all in for it, Randolph said, but I don't see how you can do it. Uh, and I just, I love that, that just fiery spirit of Winston Churchill. Um, and though, though even his son doesn't believe it's possible, he doesn't believe his dad can do it, he still believes. Now, Eric Larson says when Churchill took command uh, as prime minister, he said a new electricity surged through Whitehall. And this is where, this is the seat of the government. Subdued corridors awoke. It was as though the machine had overnight acquired one or two new gears capable of far higher speeds than had ever before been thought possible. This new energy, unfamiliar and disconcerting, coursed through all bureaucratic strata from the lowest secretary to the most senior minister. So Churchill brings this new energy to the leadership of Great Britain. And I think so many times that's really what leaders do. They bring a new energy. They bring a new optimism. They, they bring a new intensity. Um, and what's amazing about this is Churchill was so action-oriented. Uh, even at times where there isn't a lot for them really to do, he's finding things for, do, what, for them to do to build morale, to build a sense of momentum, to just keep innovating and trying to make things happen um, because for him, one of the worst things to do is just to sit on your hands and, and just wait for the inevitable. And I really like that. And I really aspire to be a leader like that. You know, sometimes you may not know what the right thing to do is, but just do something. It, you, the plan may not be perfect. It may be full of holes, but, it's, but action is usually always better than inaction. And that's how Churchill led by and large. 
It said what he wanted most was to give them action. As he made clear from the start, action in all realms, from the office to the battlefield. What he especially wanted was for Britain to take the offensive in the war, to do something, anything, to bring the war directly to that bad man. That was his preferred term for Hitler. As Churchill said on frequent occasions, he wanted Germans to bleed and burn. (laughs) Um, So Churchill, again, just is this man of action. And he wants to be on the offensive. And what we're going to see in the year 1940, as much as he wanted to be on the offensive, he really couldn't be because they were just getting pulverized by the Germans. But he remains steadfast. And I love that idea. And I would just encourage you to think about your life. It's so easy to get on the defensive in life is to always let life put us on our heels and to think about what we don't have, what we can't do, who isn't there, what we've lost, what we failed at. But I find offensive thinking way more helpful. And whatever you want to do or accomplish or whatever you want to do in ministry or business, uh, get on the offensive. Even if it's not perfect, if it's not great, if you are trying to move forward, you're creating, you're bringing a new energy to yourself and to those around you. And that in itself is worth its weight in gold. On his first speech to the parliament, He ended his speech with this phrase, I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. And uh, in that phrase, he would use uh, in another famous speech, but it just kind of gives you this, that whole concept of this is where we're at. It's not pretty, but we're going to give everything we can. If Germany invades, we're going to take down as many as we can, but one thing we're not going to do is quit trying, is surrender, is try to broker peace with Hitler. Um, We will fight to the last one of us. And and that spirit he was able to instill in the people around him and in the the British people. Now here's just kind of a funny thing about Churchill's habits. It said he took two baths every day, his longtime habit, no matter where he was, and regardless of the urgency of the events unfolding elsewhere. So And there's all kinds of stories where Churchill is dictating from the bathtub and secretaries are trying to type these memos and orders and things or where he's dictating from his bed. Um, And again, his working habits are so strange, but they work for him. Um, And I just think it's an interesting thought to look at our lives and see what schedule works for us. May be strange to others, but if it makes us more effective, then it's worth doing. And Churchill understood himself, and he knew how he needed to work. And he made everyone else work around that rather than adapt to them. And I think there's a lot of wisdom in that. Um, So the story goes on, and it it talks just about this whole idea of, of Churchill's strategy on leadership. He says that recognizing that confidence and fearlessness were attitudes that could be adopted and taught by example, Churchill issued a directive to all ministers to put on a strong positive front. He said in these dark days, the prime minister would be grateful if all of his colleagues in government as well as high officials would maintain a high morale in their circles, not minimizing the gravity of events, but showing confidence in our ability and inflexible resolve to continue the war till we've broken the will of Germany. So Churchill knew that attitude mattered, that our posture as leader matters, that the spirit that we convey matters, Um, and that at this time, that was one of the only things that they had to offer 
was just to show a strong front to say, we can do this. And the author says, uh, as these early speeches began to come out, that Churchill demonstrated a striking trait, his knack for making people feel loftier, stronger, and above all, more courageous. One of his secretaries said he gave forth a confidence, an invincible will that called out everything that was brave and strong. And I think that is just so cool. And I would encourage you, if you're a boss or a leader or, you know, you just work with people or with your own family, even with your friends, what kind of spirit do you call out of people? When people are around you and when they're around me, do we make them feel more confident? Do we make them feel stronger? Do we make them feel that their lives are more important and part of something significant? Or do we make them feel smaller, insecure? Because our words, our posture, our attitude will create some effect on people. And what Churchill knew and what he was so adept at was using his words and the English language and his actions to build people up. And I love that. I want to be a leader like that. And I bet you do too. Um, So think about that. Churchill also, um, and the, the book talks quite a bit about this, he, he liked to relax and he liked to, to eat a lot of food and drink a lot of champagne and brandy. And, uh, and what's interesting about the book is it actually follows how much money he would spend on these things on a weekend, entertaining all kinds of guests. Um, and there was just one funny moment. I just have to share it because I think it's funny. But uh, they, they said Churchill would be silent, grumpy, and remote at the start of a meal. And this is his wife talking. Um, but by, as it went on, he would get in a better mood as he ate good food and had a bunch of champagne and stuff like that. But it said, but mellowed by champagne and good food, he became a different man and a delightful and amusing companion. After his wife once criticized his drinking, he told her, always remember, Clemmy, that I've taken more out of alcohol than alcohol has taken out of me. <laughs> I just thought that was funny. I don't think that's a good approach to life. And I, and I think, uh, that may not be true, but it just gives you a sense of the personality of Churchill, and I had to laugh when I read that. Um, and Churchill was moody. Uh, he, he was probably not an easy man to work with uh, by any means, one, because of the virtue of his habits, but also because he was pretty demanding um, in many ways and, uh, and was not afraid to, to speak his mind to the benefit or not of those around him. Um, So the story goes on and eventually uh, London comes under attack. So France falls uh, far quickly than anyone predicted. And, you know, Great Britain is absolutely demoralized uh, by how quickly they fall. And so Germany thinks that they're going to just, they're going to bomb Great Britain until Great Britain is willing to talk peace. And what Germany knows, if they can get them in peace talks, then they can uh, take over in time and they'll easily have the upper hand in that. Um, and so their, their theory is just, they're gonna just bomb them into uh, morale being so low that they're willing um, to talk peace and then Germany will, will take over that way. But, As it begins to happen, that's not how the people respond. And after one of these initial bombings, Churchill came to a group of dispirited people looking over what remained of their homes 
And one woman shouted, when are we going to bomb Berlin, Winnie? Churchill whirled, shook his fist and walking stick and snarled, you leave that to me. And the people loved that. And the fact that he was out there with them, seeing the carnage and speaking confidence to them meant, uh, meant so much to them. Um, and although it was difficult and people were dying and people were afraid, the will of the British people was not broken. But there was a, a high cost to this. Uh, Larson talks a lot about the bombings and what it looked like and what it felt like. Um, and he said the raids generated a paradox. The odds that any one person would die on any one night were slim, but the odds that someone somewhere in London would die were 100%. Safety was a product of luck alone. So the bombs created this complete uncertainty. Uh, your house could be fine, your next door neighbor is destroyed. Your street could be fine, the street next to you destroyed. Um, and there was no rhyme or reason to it. And the Germans were bombing all different places. At first, they sort of avoided civilian targets, but then they stopped caring because they wanted to break the back of the British people. They wanted to bomb them into capitulation, but it just would not work. Um, the people would rally, but it was a tremendous psychological toll. And the bombings took place primarily at night because the British air defenses were very limited at night. They basically couldn't do anything. So the British Air Force was a little more underdeveloped than the German Air Force who were beginning to use new radar technology. They were far more adept at navigating the night. And the British Air Force, the Royal Air Force, was virtually incapable at night. Their air defense artillery was very, very ineffective. So all they could really do was just bunker down and be bombed. And so as you can imagine, that was a really, really horrible place to be. And so bombings went on and uh, um, the uh, Eric Larson talks just quite a bit about how that affected the population. And he, and he quotes some interesting stories. Virginia Woolf, um, she said her depression worsened by the war, the destruction of her houses, and, and this was going on for months and months. Um, and she ended up committing suicide. She wrote a note, I feel certain that I'm going mad again. I feel we can't go through another of those terrible times. I shan't recover this time. I begin to hear voices. I can't concentrate. So I'm doing what seems the best thing to do. And then just her hat and cane were found on a bank by a river. Um, so although many people, their resolve grew, many people, as you could imagine, really broke down under it. There's also a lot of interesting things that happened during the raid. So people partied like you would not believe because some people just looked at it and said, well, I might be dead tonight, so I might as well have fun doing it. And nightclubs were hopping. Um, there was all these statistics that Eric Larson has about affairs and things like that. People just put all morality aside. Some people did. And, and they just kind of lived it up because they thought this night might be our last moment. So it was a strange time for sure this year, 1940 in London. Um, but Britain stood firm. And eventually they were able 
to gain the goodwill of President Roosevelt, gain the goodwill of the American people, uh, maintain their unity as a nation, and then eventually Pearl Harbor happened. So December 7th, 1941, they attacked us, Roosevelt said, at Pearl Harbor. We are all in the same boat now. Roosevelt told Churchill that he would declare uh, war on Japan the next day, and Churchill promised to do likewise immediately after him. Churchill went to bed and slept the sleep of the saved and the thankful. Churchill worried briefly that Roosevelt would focus only on the Japanese, but on December 11th, Hitler declared war on America. America returned the favor. Churchill and Roosevelt were indeed now all in the same boat. It might be badly knocked out by this storm, wrote Pug Ismay, a British general, but it would not capsize. There was no doubt about the end. They knew they could win. And when they did. Uh, and there is so much more in the book. I wanted to keep this uh, under 30 minutes, keep it to our normal timeline. But I hope you're inspired by uh, Winston Churchill. If you love history, I encourage you to read it. It is an absolutely delightful read. Uh, there's so much to it. But, you know, let's take those lessons and let's lead in a way that inspires people, that calls out greatness in them and that helps them to be more than they even thought possible. Thanks so much for tuning in.